Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and today I'm here with Dr. Gene Zupovich to discuss his new book, Before the Religious Right, Liberal Protestants, Human Rights, and the Polarization of the United States. Dr. Zubovich, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So thanks so much for having me, Zeb. I, my name is Gene Zubovich. I am an assistant professor of history at um, the University at Buffalo, uh, which is part of the SUNY system. Uh, I received my PhD in uh, US history from the University of California at Berkeley. Um, I write about um, primarily about the US and the world, um, human rights and religion. And this year, I am a fellow um, at the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. So what led you to this book um, that we're discussing today? So the last thing I expected to do was to write a book about um, the history of liberal Protestants. <laughs> um, you know, it kind of came about by accident. Um, years ago, I stumbled on a, a book written by a pastor um, who you know, waged one of like the fiercest, like um, most critical attacks on racism. Uh, this was in the 1940s, uh, really one of the most critical takes on racism by any white person prior to the 1960s. Um, and so I started looking into him and, you know, as I did so, I discovered this kind of like vibrant intellectual and political world of um, liberal Protestantism. Uh, it was also a deeply uh, flawed world. Um, but in either case, right, I knew very little about it. Um, so these were folks who were involved in the movement to get rid of Jim Crow. Um, they supported the New Deal. Uh, they became important players in the creation of uh, the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, you know, it's hard to count them, but probably there were somewhere in the mid-century, mid-20th century somewhere between like a quarter and a third of the U.S. population. And there were also people who uh, were, you know, this community was dominated by elites who were really close um, to U.S. power, right? So they had influence. And so I grew up, you know, in the wake of the rise of the religious right. And so this was not the kind of religion um, I was used to, right? And so I decided to write this book, a kind of History of the Religious Politics of Liberal Protestants from approximately World War I until the 1960s, right, at this time uh, before the religious right. And I didn't write this book because I'm a member um, of this community. I wrote this book out of a recognition, really, of the importance of liberal Protestants to some of the major events and themes of 20th century uh, U.S. history. Right after doing all this research and writing this book, I've really come to believe that, you know, in the same ways you can't understand today's politics without understanding evangelicals. Um, you can't really understand liberalism in the 20th century without a historical account of the political mobilization of liberal Protestants. And uh, as a historiographical point, you know, one of one of the interventions I see you making here is um, has to do with when human rights comes into existence as a framework. So, you know, so what, what's, what's been the dominant take on that so far and how do you tweak or challenge that? Yeah. You know, I think we're used to today, um, thinking about, um, human rights as a you know, form of like criminal activity, like, um, you know, the imprisoning of political prisoners. And we tend to think about it as something that, tends to happen relatively far away from the U.S., right? So, you know, we talk about human rights violations and, you know, Latin America or Africa, right? These tend to be the sites of um, this discourse. Um, you know, ecumenical Protestants um, saw things differently. They looked at it um, through kind of their own framework about which I'll say more later um, that really connected international events to local events. Um, and so for this reason, I think the liberal Protestant views of uh, human rights didn't displace other concerns in the way that Sam Moyne argues um, happened in the 1970s. Um, rather, human rights discourse merged with longstanding political causes among liberal Protestants. So they started, for example, fighting segregation and economic inequality in the name of um, uh, human rights. And so I guess that's kind of one, one contribution I make 
Um, historians also tend to emphasize um, human rights waves. Um, so there's a kind of 1940s wave, there's a 1970s wave, um, you know, sometimes called the revival. Um, and, you know, part of my uh, work here is to show how important human rights continue to be uh, in this community throughout the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and so I think in emphasizing that, I'm joining folks like um, uh, Sarah Snyder, uh, who, you know, who wrote a recent book about the you know, importance of human rights in the 60s. Um, I'm also joining you know, historians of um, Africa and um, Latin America who also talk about, uh, who have kind of a different um, you know, uh, time period that they're, uh, uh, that they're uh, focused on. So let's start um, at the beginning of the book then. You know, in your first chapter, you, you pick up with the challenges the United States faces, and, and globally, but here we're talking about the United States, as a result of the Great Depression. So how does that shape the worldview of these ecumenical Protestants that you single out in the book? Yeah, I guess the Great Depression really did like two important things. Um, first, I think it brought Protestant liberalism and the political liberalism, you know, as defined by Franklin Roosevelt, uh, closer together. The second thing it did is it ushered in a new generation of leaders, of liberal Protestant leaders, um, who were much more uh, internationally connected than the generation before. Um, it brought these folks into uh, positions of power in this community. And so let me just give you a specific uh, example of, you know, the way I think this this worked. Um, I, you know, I write a lot about uh, G. Bromley Oxnam. Uh, you've probably never heard of him, uh, but he was a household name for much of the 20th century. Um, you know, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He hung out with presidents. He uh, made, you know, headlines for, you know, various things that he was doing. Um, he grew up in Los Angeles, you know, middle class family. He was the son of an engineer. Uh, he went to school locally at USC, uh, went to MIT and Harvard for a short time. Eventually, he um, uh, got a doctorate in theology at uh, Boston University School of Theology. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, became a Methodist bishop. Um, he was a proponent of the social gospel. And, you know, soon after he got his graduate degree, he came back to L.A. and started a church that looked a lot like um, Jane Addams's Hull House. Um, he did this right after uh, World War One, uh, but Oxnum was also really internationally engaged. Right, he st started going on these things called study missions soon after World War One, uh, which took him across the world. So he would travel to the UK and meet with Labour Party leaders. He would travel to the Soviet Union with Stalin. He traveled to India for months at a time, right, getting to know uh, you know, local leaders there. Um, this was a kind of a new venture. It was funded by the socialist evangelist Sherwood Eddy. And, you know, Oxnum wasn't the only one that went on this. Um, you know, the kind of major, some, a lot of the major leaders who would emerge, um, in this community in the thirties, forties and fifties, right. Went on these study missions. And so I bring up Oxnum because I think we can see in him the kind of merger of the social gospel tradition, uh, with Wilsonian internationalism, right? And as people like Oxnum came to power in the 1930s, we could see that their religious liberalism, right, starts coinciding more and more with how Franklin Roosevelt was using the term liberal, right? He meant by liberal, right, he meant, you know, a, a greater role for the government in taking care of its citizens, as well as, right, an openness to uh, participating in international organizations, and so liberal Protestantism and Roosevelt's liberalism were drawing closer together, right, among this new generation of liberal Protestants. And I should say it wasn't a one-way street, right, like Roosevelt uh, courted uh, this community um, as well. Uh, but it wasn't love at first sight. <laughs> um, you know, liberal Protestant, uh, uh, liberal Protestants flagship journal, um, The Christian Century, endorsed Herbert Hoover uh, in 1932. But soon after Roosevelt was elected, you know, um, most um, uh, most periodicals, uh, you know, started cheering his reforms during his first hundred days in office. Um, liberal Protestants became important uh, players in labor disputes. They helped pass the Wagner Act. They helped pass the Social Security Act. And so by 1936, um, liberal Protestant leaders were really thrilled to endorse 
um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt for re-election that year. Right. And so in this relatively short span of time, you know, 1932 through 1936, we can see a kind of ascendancy of a new generation of uh, leaders in the liberal Protestant community, right, who whose you know, ideas and values were rooted in both the social gospel and internationalism. Uh, and we could see, right, the coming together of Protestant liberalism um, and political liberalism. And I just want to add, like, there's, I think, a kind of a historiographical takeaway here. Um, since, you know, Richard Hofstetter's uh, book, I think it came out in 1955, um, The Age of Reform, um, I think historians have largely, like, followed his lead in arguing essentially that, you know, mid-century liberalism that began with the Great Depression, you know, New Deal and carried forward into the 60s is essentially defined by its abandonment of the moralizing religious politics of the progressive era. But I think what this way of um, thinking about liberalism misses is the way in which liberal Protestantism itself was changing, right? And the important role that this community played in the New Deal, right? I think it's, um, right, uh, uh, I think the you know notion of a kind of New Deal coalition, right, like really doesn't quite get us uh, to you know understand right the the important role of religious liberalism um, uh, for political liberalism in this era. Now, at the same time that they're doing that in the second chapter, you also break down that there's a a coming international crisis that many of them are able to sort of recognize the signs of, and it's taking place against the backdrop of. Uh, I, I think you can always overstate how isolationist Americans are, but it is taking place amid a period of at least skepticism about involvement in uh, foreign affairs and military interventions. So how do these um, ecumenical Protestants navigate that? Where do they come out uh, thinking about the shadow of an oncoming war? Yeah, so I think isolationism is kind of the wrong word to describe this political community. The more salient word would be pacifism. Uh, so, you know, Oxenham's denomination, uh, which is the United Methodist Church, this is the largest Protestant denomination in the country in the late 1930s. Um, it's the one that's kind of all the major groups like most inclined towards pacifism. And it's really hard to overstate just how popular pacifism was among liberal Protestants uh, in this period. Uh, but in the late 1930s, you also have folks like Reinhold Niebuhr, um, who had been a committed pacifist for about a decade and a half. And. Uh, another person uh, who was especially influential, Henry Pitney Van Dusen, um, these folks began calling themselves realists, right? And they started pushing the United States to uh, aid uh, the British war effort. And so, you know, I describe a lot of these kind of heated debates that I won't go uh, into detail uh, now, right, about how to respond to, you know, Nazi aggression, to Japanese aggression. Um, there were these very um, divisive battles about um, Herbert, Herbert Hoover's food aid plan uh, in 1940. Essentially, he wanted to kind of revive his what he was doing during World War One. He wanted to send food to, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands, which were, you know, Nazi occupied at the time. And, you know, it presented a set of moral dilemmas that grew quite fierce. Um, I've actually been really thinking about this um, in light of Russia's recent um, invasion of Ukraine, right? I think these debates are really instructive about the moral stakes and moral dilemmas, right, of humanitarian aid um, uh, at a moment like this. Right. So these these battles and debates were, you know, fierce. Um, but what I think is even more important than the debates themselves is how they became resolved. Um, so essentially, they they never agreed on how to face the you know wars in Europe and in Asia. But they did agree on coming together, um, putting aside discussions of the war, and to focus instead on. Uh, post-war peace planning, right? So post-war peace drew on ideas coming out of the international ecumenical movement. And I should say just a couple of quick words about what that was. Um, it was essentially a movement that began in the early 20th century to bring 
Protestant and um, Orthodox denominations together across national boundaries to create a kind of international Christian community that at least until the 60s excluded um, Catholics, right? But it was bringing all these folks um, uh, together and out of, the, uh, uh, out of these international discussions um, came a way of looking at the world that I call Protestant globalism. Um, and I could speak more to it if you want, but for now, let me just say that Protestant globalism was basically, um, you know, a new way of um, thinking about international governance and a new way of conceiving space, um, right? It was, the, you know, it grew out of this idea that all people across the world are interconnected um, and that, um, you know, the liberal order of the... Um, uh, uh, you know, the liberal Wilsonian order essentially failed because it gave too much credence to sovereignty, right? It was rooted in this idea of national sovereignty. Um, and so what you needed was a kind of world government that stood over and above um, nation states. And Protestant globalism also kind of linked uh, international and local events, right? If, you know, if people, you know, if Christians across the world are connected to one another, right? The nations of the world are connected to one another. Then what happens, you know, in the United States, right? In your local community really matters for the whole globe and vice versa, right? So there's this kind of new way of thinking about the world that I call Protestant globalism that's, that gets imported into the United States and shapes this kind of post-war peace discussion. And so it's really remarkable, right? You get folks like um, the future Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, who's, you know, in charge of this kind of mobilization uh, for the post-war uh, peace planning project, uh, working really closely together uh, with, you know, pacifist and Trotskyite, you know, A.J. Musty, right? So they're kind of like working together. They have nothing in common politically, right? Except that they both agree on trying to work together to create a you know, post-World War II um, peace, right? And so liberal Protestants never really agree on uh, how to deal with, you know, what becomes known as World War II, but they essentially unite around the notion of a just post-war order. And they would go on to stage a kind of massive transformative political mobilization to create this post-war peace um, in the 1940s. Very good. So, We've we've touched, I think, on this historiographical intervention, but it's it, it's prominent, I think, in this third chapter with this idea of how Protestants are engaging with the idea of human rights. So walk us through what you're discussing there. Yeah, so I should say that you know I'm not the first person to um, write about this. Um, you know, other folks have written about the important role of these liberal ecumenical Protestants. Um, uh, the, the way, the role that which they played in the creation of the UN, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, so I can, you know, name uh, a bunch, um, you know, Andrew Preston, Heather Warren, uh, David Hollinger, John Nurser, right? They've all written about this. Um, even, you know, the classic account by Robert Devine, um, uh, which is problematic for, all, for you know, uh, for for um, certain takes on on the uh, stakes of this era, right? Even he, you know, back in like the 1960s when he was writing about this has like a, you know, a few pages about what the Methodists were up to in this regard. And so, um, you know, the, the contribution of liberal Protestantism has long been acknowledged by, um, you know, a handful of historians. I'm sure I'm missing um, many others, right? And so I write about, you know, in great detail, and I think I have my own interpretation of, um, you know, some of the, uh, some of the stakes and this kind of massive political mobilization organized by, you know, G. Bromley Oxnam and John Foster Dulles, uh, which I call the World Order Movement. It ran from approximately 1942 through, you know, the end of uh, World War II. It's this like huge mobilization involves millions of people um, who are urging the U.S. government and, you know, their, their allies abroad to create a post-war peace along what they call the six pillars of peace. This policy document put out by Dulles that includes a call for um, uh, an international government. I think one of the things I'm most excited about contributing to this debate is the way in which um, ordinary Americans became involved in these discussions. Right. And so I spend a lot of time talking about Dulles and Niebuhr and, you know, the philosopher William Ernest Hawking in these debates. But I also talk about folks like um, Thelma Stevens, uh, who's a really interesting figure. Um, she 
grew up uh, in rural Mississippi. She's a, a white woman uh, and a Methodist. Uh, in the 1930s, she started attending trials with other women, um, uh, trials in the American South of black men being accused of crimes. And she's sitting there in the courtroom, right, trying to provide a kind of moral witness, you know, signaling to the judges and the juries that uh, she's going to try her best to hold them accountable. Um, you know, if um, justice and these uh, trials were not carried out. Um, in the 30s, she was also, you know, a passionate anti-lynching uh, legislation advocate. And by the 1940s, she is um, in charge of an organization of about 2 million Methodist women. And in this Methodist women's milieu, there's this really vibrant exploration of what human rights mean um, to, uh, to this community. Uh, they're talking about human rights and race. They're debating human rights and economics. They're debating human rights and gender. Um, they're creating these reading groups. They're bringing in experts and engaging in debates. Um, they're staging pageants. They're holding rallies. And there are certain critical moments, right, where all this grassroots enthusiasm about human rights makes its way to Protestant elites um, like John Foster Dulles, right? They want input from local churches in order to legitimize um, their political mobilization, right? They feel like they need popular pressure um, in order to, you know, um, get rid of what they think of as American isolationism, right? And create this kind of internationalist, globalist world order. Um, uh, and so, right, as a result of inviting this kind of feedback from local churches, we'll see over time, um, elite and grassroots discourses merging together, right? And so what I'm arguing about human rights is that if you want to know how human rights became an everyday vernacular uh, in the 1940s, you know, to borrow a phrase from uh, Mark Bradley, um, you really need to look at both elite discourses and grassroots activism and the way in which um, they came together at this moment. Now, in your fourth chapter, and, and this is a, a topic that's close to me because it aligns with my own scholarly interests so much. Um, you talk about the growing involvement of mainline Protestant churches in the fight against Jim Crow, and we've been touching on you know, concerns over racism. Walk us through that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the concerns were longstanding, you know, in some ways, um, you know, goes back to more than a century earlier. You can talk about the history of abolition, reconstruction, the fight for anti-lynching legislation. Right. So what I think happens in the 1940s is really a transformation right, of, um, of commitments towards anti-racism. So I spent years, many years, uh, long years, uh, reading the publications of uh, white liberal Protestants. Um, and there was something really curious that happened in the 40s uh, in the way they talked about race. Um, so before 1946, you almost never saw the word segregation in these writings. You always saw the problem defined as race prejudice, right? And so in 1946, they suddenly start talking about segregation all the time, right? And this might seem like a really small thing, you know, just a change of phrase, but I think it's really pointing to a broader political reorientation um, uh, of attitudes towards race in the United States, right? So in 1946, liberal Protestant groups, uh, including the Federal Council of Churches, uh, became some of the first predominantly white large national organizations that called for an end to segregation in the American South. You know, I searched for exceptions. The only one I could really find is the Communist Party, right? So, you know, they were really, um, you know, one of the first, right, predominantly white liberal uh, organizations to call for an end to Jim Crow and not just, right, you know, to, uh, to make the call, but then began right away mobilizing politically to work towards its end. Right. And so I think this shift in language, right, um, from race prejudice, which emphasized racism as a kind of problem of individual attitudes that called for Americans to become more educated about race, um, this shift from race prejudice to segregation, right, which really emphasizes racism as a structural problem and called for political solutions. Right. This might sound kind of trivial, but it's a symbol of a broader political reorientation uh, happening in the U.S., Right. And so it's also one that took place in this particular community earlier than um, in other communities. And so I try to figure out how this linguistic 
switch happened, right? And it led me to, you know, a coalition of black and white activists, uh, some of the most prominent figures of the generation before the civil rights movement, uh, people like Benjamin Mays, uh, Channing Tobias, George Haynes, uh, Dorothy Tilly, Will W. Alexander. And they gathered together and in the tradition of, you know, the position paper liberalism of the era, they formed a study committee, right? And they lobbied institutions and they wrote white papers. And eventually this was enough to convince the Federal Council of Churches, the YMCA, the YWCA, um, as well as a few uh, Protestant denominations to go along with a public condemnation of segregation. And these activists were empowered by Protestant globalism. They were empowered by the World Order Movement. Um, you know, essentially, they started making an argument that became much more common during the Cold War, right? Uh, which was essentially that if you want post-war peace, you need to get rid of segregation in the United States. That you know what happens uh, domestically, right, really has global ramifications. Now, chapter five is, a, as I thought, um, sort of an interesting mirror image to your fourth chapter because it's it's continuing this discussion of anti-racism, but it's also increasingly taking a sort of global look at the issue that's happening in this era of decolonization. So how are ecumenical Protestants reacting? When we think about human rights today, I think we obviously, you know, instinctively know that you know, human rights are anti-racist, right? Like if all human rights, um, if, you know, all human beings have rights, right? Then of course, right, you can't make distinctions between people based on race. Um, but I think this link, right, between human rights and race was anything but obvious uh, in 1948 when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was created, right? Like lawyers groups in that era focused on war crimes, Catholics focused on personalism. Uh, the American Anthropological Association declared that human rights are antithetical to decolonization. Right? And so why liberal Protestants joined the NAACP uh, and activists in the global South and stressing the importance of race uh, as say, you know, as opposed to say like, uh, you know, religious liberty um, as a central pillar of human rights was a real mystery to me. And, you know, I, so I tried to figure out what was going on. And, you know, I, I think it was essentially an intellectual project, right? Ecumenical Protestants uh, drew on their massive academic networks at um, seminaries, um, you know, Protestant academics embedded at universities, um, you know, missionary colleges overseas and places like China, uh, Protestant run historically black colleges, um, you know, it's really hard to uh, overemphasize just how liberal Protestants were embedded in the intellectual life of the U.S. at that time. So, for example, in the late 1940s, you know, the head of the AHA, the, the American Historical Association, was, you know, a former missionary to China, uh, you know, and a historian of China working at Yale Divinity uh, School. Um, and so out of these, you know, rich intellectual networks came the first academic study of racism as a global phenomenon. It was a kind of like textbook survey of race in a bunch of different countries that would take you from kind of ethnogenesis to the present day, right? And talk about the way in which structures of race um, appeared and solidified over time and the kind of social, political, economic factors, you know, geopolitical factors that uh, shaped those conceptions of race. And these intellectuals really focused on two countries in particular. They focused on Brazil and the USSR, right? And Brazil, they praised for its racial cosmopolitanism, right? This was in the Protestant imagination, a place where people were so colorblind that they intermarried across racial lines. And they also emphasized um, the USSR Right, which was the first country in the world to be organized around the idea of ethno-territoriality, right? Each um, nationality kind of got a homeland um, and national languages and cultures, right, were not only tolerated, uh, but promoted, right? Some historians refer to the Soviet Union as a kind of affirmative action um, empire, um, you know, that uh, promoted, right, and, uh, 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 you know, um, national cultures and, and peoples. Um, and, you know, liberal Protestants uh, saw these models 
uh, saw both of these places as models for the United States to emulate. Right? And you know, I should point out the obvious, right? They got lots of things wrong about these places. Um, they overemphasized the colorblindness in Brazil. Um, they missed, you know, many things about the USSR, including the rising anti-Semitism, uh, which was, you know, quite well known that they should have caught it. Um, but still, I think in the discussions of Brazil and the Soviet Union, we could see new ideas about racial cosmopolitanism and racial pluralism, um, you know, coming to the fore. And we have to keep in mind, right, this was a moment, you know, before C. Van Woodward's strange career of Jim Crow, right, there wasn't the kind of usable past that Protestants could look to in order to chart a path forward towards an unsegregated future. And so instead, they ended up looking for models abroad, right, in places like the Soviet Union and Brazil, right? And so these deliberations about racism as a global phenomenon shaped the Federal Council of Churches' own Declaration of Human Rights, which was published just a week before um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This was, I think, in um, December of 1948. Um, and it was received by the press as a condemnation of Jim Crow, right? It was about many things, of course, but that's how the press interpreted it. Uh, and so, you know, you had front page headlines in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, announcing that, you know, the Federal Council of Churches was calling for the end of segregation, right? And so human rights and anti-racism became conflated in the American public's mind. It also became a real source of controversy for liberal Protestants, right? Two years earlier, I had mentioned, you know, 1946, the Federal Council of Churches called for an end to Jim Crow but it did its best to keep its pronouncements from reaching everyday churchgoers, right? It tried to bury the pronouncements. Um, it empowered its activists to mobilize against segregation, but it wanted to keep quiet about it so as not to upset white churchgoers um, who were at best apathetic about um, segregation, right? And so human rights uh, in 1948 became the vehicle in which the stance um, of the Federal Council of Churches and other groups um, became delivered to the U.S. public, right? Human rights was the vehicle that announced to the American public that these liberal Protestant communities were standing up to um, segregation, right? And so in, in a way, you know, 1948 kind of marks a break in my book. You know, the first half of the book is really organized around the theme of international engagement, the development of the ecumenical movement, um, and the ways in which uh, ideas like Protestant globalism, discussions of human rights made their way into the United States, right, through approximately 1948. And the second half, right, really starts emphasizing the fallout of these ideas, the ways in which these imports, right, started creating divisions and started creating uh, polarization in this community. And that's an excellent segue into my next question. You know, you've noted uh, the Federal Council of Churches wanted to uh, sort of inaugurate activism on the question quietly of segregation. But of course, eventually this does spill over into the churches themselves. So what is the effect that this has? Um, the effect on um, segregation in the churches, you know, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's complicated. Uh, I guess I would start off by saying, you know, the most important thing about liberal Protestant mobilization against segregation isn't how it affected, you know, white Protestant churches, but the way in which it affected the course of the civil rights movement. Um, and, you know, some of the ways in which that happened, you know, liberal Protestants were, you know, on the committee that um, issued, you know, Harry Truman's report to secure these rights. Um, they filed briefs in Supreme Court cases, um, you know, Shelley versus Kramer, uh, Sweat versus Painter. Um, they became involved in debates at, um, you know, Little Rock Central High. Um, you know, uh, they provided an important source of support for the civil rights movement in the U.S. So Protestant youths became uh, involved in sit-ins. Um, uh, the National Council of Churches, um, the federal council becomes renamed the National Council in 1950. So basically, you know, it's complicated, but but there's a lot of institutional continuity. Anyway, the National Council of Churches brought, brought in um, Anna Hegeman, uh, who ended up mobilizing 
a really effective campaign to help pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? And so I think there's a real, you know, we shouldn't focus too much on, you know, what's going on internally in this community. We should also be thinking about what's what effect this community is having on the United States writ large, right? But uh, but to your point, right, like inside these churches, um, the issue was deeply divisive, as you can imagine, right? A lot of the stuff that the, you know, federal and national council of churches were doing, as well as, you know, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, um, Disciples of Christ, um, all these communities, you know, uh, what, what they were doing was not enough for many African-Americans, right, who criticized their, you know, tepidness, their, you know, uh, lack of action, you know, proclamations without backing it up. Um, and so, you know, you had uh, not only criticism for many African-Americans, but folks like Adam Clayton Powell of the Abyssinian Baptist Church, right? They left um, these organizations in the mid-1950s, right? So, you know, kind of withdrawing from uh, this broader community, Right. On the other hand, you also have segregationists and, you know, the folks who Martin Luther King Jr. called white moderates um, who were trying to stop this mobilization, this anti-racist mobilization inside the churches. And there are a few interesting things about um, these people. For the most part, they're not making arguments um, that you would hear in evangelical circles. There's not a lot of talk about, you know, the curse of Ham or, you know, how God created, you know, nations to live separately from one another. Um, what they start doing in the 1950s is start um, taking up more explicitly political arguments. They start talking about states' rights and majority rule. Um, you know, uh, I, I think in important ways, right, the battles over segregation act as a bridge for some people in the liberal Protestant milieu to the modern conservative movement, right? They kind of start speaking the same language. It's also like another way um, that churches are affected um, because so many churchgoers, especially in the American South, are resistant to desegregation. Liberal Protestant leaders in the 1950s started moving away from churches as a site of organizing. Um, and instead turned to youth, like young people and colleges, right, as the kind of constituency that's most receptive to their ideas and most receptive to, to organizing, right? And, you know, there's kind of irony here, right? I think really unwittingly, these, you know, liberal Protestants help create and facilitate a kind of radical youth culture that by the 1960s, right, will start challenging Protestant authority, right? Uh, and making tensions and, you know, and rifts within, you know, liberal Protestantism uh, even more severe. So it, your last two chapters, chapters eight and nine, uh, they interested me personally because one of the criticisms you see leveled at, at human rights discourse is that it disregards uh, sort of economic concerns. Um, I'm thinking of some of uh, Sam, Moy Sam Moyne's critiques. But here, you know, you're heavily focused on economic engagement and fiscal questions. So where do ecumenical Protestants sort of come down on this issue and where do they encounter pushback, especially as we're sort of heading into the 1950s and 1960s? Yeah, the last couple of um, chapters of my book um, focus on how, you know, Protestant globalism uh, and ideas about uh, human rights reframed liberal Protestant thinking um, about economics. And, um, you know, I discuss at length uh, something they call the responsible society, uh, which is an idea that originated in international discussions and organizations like the World Council of Churches, which is founded in 1947, you know, think of it as a kind of like Protestant alternative to the Vatican, right? A place where, you know, Protestants and Orthodox bodies from across the world can meet and deliberate and discuss and find communion with one another. Anyway, out of this international sphere, right, this idea of the responsible society came and got imported into the United States. And, you know, the basic idea with the responsible society is that the people who hold political and economic authority are responsible right, for the use of that power um, to God and to the people whose welfare is affected by that power, right? And they thought of this, you know, as a kind of middle way between capitalism and communism, 
right? Uh, it offered, like, I think for, you know, a lot of Americans, it offered a kind of theological justification uh, of the welfare state, right? And so this, you know, the, the set of ideas, as well as, you know, the actions Protestants take to defend this idea, um, plays an important role in defending the gains made by the New Deal. Um, and it helped prevent the Republican Party's attempt to roll back um, the New Deal. So I think it played, you know, an important role in those kind of 40s, 50s debates, right, about what the, you know, American economy was going to look like. And, that, you know, uh, in, you know, in a country as devout as the United States, right, I would say, you know, never underestimate the importance, right, of, you know, Christian theology, Christian imagery, um, you know, Christian endorsements and blessings of, um, you know, things that, um, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, ideas in public debates, um, right? And so I think that that part of it was important. But I think something that was even more important um, is the way in which, you know, much like race, it engendered a kind of debate, you know, e even like a civil war, right, about who gets to decide what constitutes a Christian economy, right? You know, and as I said, this question, right, of who gets to decide, you know, what counts as, you know, Christian way of doing business um, really mattered uh, uh, in the United States. And this debate was framed as a war between the clergy and the laity, right? Uh, and, you know, I should explain really briefly, right, like the laity uh, means, you know, folks who aren't members of the clergy, right? So just, you know, churchgoers um, uh, and, you know, people who go to church. But um, since at least the 1930s, the laity became a kind of political identity. Um, and I talk about this in the chapter in the Great Depression, but especially during the Cold War, right? This becomes uh, really prominent, right? Uh, people who call themselves the laity aren't just people who go to church, but people who are opposed to the liberal politics of the clergy, of their priests and ministers, right? People who start calling themselves the laity are disproportionately wealthy churchgoers, and many of them are, you know, conservative activists. And so in the 1950s, the thing that becomes known as the clergy-laity gap in values uh, becomes wider, right, over issues of race, the economy, you know, over the Cold War. Um, most churchgoers were never really that thrilled about the left-leaning pronouncements of, you know, the liberal Protestant clergy. But for the most part, at least until the Cold War, they kind of ignored liberal Protestant activism or sanctioned it, you know, without making a big uh, fuss about it, right? But starting in the Cold War, including in these discussions of um, the economy, right, you know, there are these tense debates, right, about, you know, what constitutes a Christian economy. And in these debates, there are these um, questions that are raised about what's called um, ecclesiology, um, which, uh, you know, uh, for those of you who don't know, ecclesiology is the branch of theology that kind of deals with the nature and structure of the church, like how do you organize your community, uh, essentially. Um, and it was a theologically specific argument about issues that American liberals and generals were facing in that era, right, about the nature of democracy, about church-state relations. And so essentially in these economic debates, there were two kind of questions being raised by the ladies challenge to the clergy, um, right? You know, the first question uh, was whether Christianity was democratic. Um, and the second question was, what are the appropriate boundaries between religion and politics, right? So these, this laity, you know, the uh, conservatives who are mobilizing uh, argue that, yeah, Christianity is democratic and the clergy shouldn't be allowed to make any pronouncements on political or social or economic issues without the approval of their congregations, right? Like they should be the ones in charge of deciding, right, how to translate theology into ethics, right, into practice. Um, and, you know, they also argued uh, at the time, you know, partly disingenuously, um, right, the lady, lady argued that, you know, religion and politics should be separated, right? Like, don't, clergy don't know anything about how the economy works, and they should just keep their distance, right? Talk about morality, talk about swaying individual hearts and minds, and let the lady, right, do the work of translating those values into, um, uh, into political norms, Right. And, you know, of, of course, right, for obvious reasons, the clergy was super resistant to this. Um, and, you know, really, neither of these questions was ever really 
satisfactorily answered um, in this community, right? Liberal Protestants were really reluctant to re-examine the hierarchies that existed in their institutions. You know, they did try to get more grassroots involvement, uh, but ultimately their position for the most part was, right, God's word and Christianity was not up for referendum. Um, you know, they tried unsuccessfully to create ties to the labor movement. Um, they had almost no African-Americans in positions of authority uh, in their institutions. You know, women were relegated to second class status. Um, and, you know, they certainly weren't willing, right, to hand over control of Christian institutions to conservative corporate leaders, you know, who wanted to, you know, undo everything they had been working for for the last uh, 20, 30 years. And I think, you know, the same thing for church-state relations. It was this kind of troubling question, you know. Um, you know, the clergy emphasized that they wanted to have political influence without partisanship. You know, it's part of the way they legitimate, legitimated their activism was by, you know, working with both the Democratic and Republican parties, uh, which, you know, I think um, facilitated at that time the kind of bar bipartisanship of American liberalism. Um, so, you know, their influence was growing in political debates while also criticizing the Catholic Church um, for its statism, right? And so these questions were never really resolved, but I think the laity's war on the clergy really had two important effects, right? So, you know, one of the effects was that it devastated some parts of the Protestant left. Um, so, you know, for example, the Methodist Federation for Social Action, which was a kind of haven for left-leaning Protestants and, you know, the site of um, important work with labor unions and, you know, um, uh, kind of activist politics on um, civil rights. You know, this was sort of demolished, basically, uh, in the 1950s. Uh, so that was one of the important effects is the, um, you know, devastation of the Protestant left. Um, the other important effect of, you know, the kind of mobilization of the laity is that it really facilitated new alliances between evangelicals, corporate leaders, and politicians um, in ways, I think, that uh, portended the rise of the religious right uh, later in the 20th century. Now, I've done something I don't normally do, which is I've actually moved out of sequence with the book, but there is one last uh, chapter that I want to discuss, and that's how how ecumenical Protestants are engaging with the Cold War, because that's what's coming, you know, and how how do they engage with it in this period? Yeah, so, you know, they don't fare that well <laughs> during the Cold War. Um, you know, <laughs> you can imagine, right, like a lot of groups didn't, um, you know, get out of the Cold War uh, unscathed. You know, liberal Protestants in some ways were uh, no different. Um, G. Bromley Oxnum was forced to testify um, in front of HUAC in 1953, um, uh, during which time he threw, you know, members of the Protestant left under the bus, uh, basically to uh, save himself, you know, um, kind of shameful uh, uh, moment for him and, you know, for his community. Um, you know, uh, the World Council of Churches, which was created in 1947, you know, promoted this kind of third way between capitalism and communism, you know, as something that is kind of separate from, you know, stands over and above um, the, you know, Cold War divisions. Um, but this becomes a, you know, heated source of controversy uh, in the United States, um, you know, and becomes problematic, right? So, you know, liberal Protestants created like this massive mobilization about the world, uh, around the world government and treated, you know, it as a kind of panacea to all the world's problems that they really had a tough time reconciling with the reality of the United Nations and, you know, really had a hard time figuring out what to do when U.S. power came into conflict with their ideas about world order, right? They had kind of taken for granted that the United States was a vehicle for their plans, right? And when those two things came into conflict, they weren't sure what to do. So I had a kind of a tough time responding to Truman's initiatives in Europe. Um, just to give one example, you know, they're really split over the issue of NATO uh, and ended up not saying anything about it. 
which was surprising because, you know, they had uh, clear positions, right, in virtually every major international political and domestic issue um, of that era, but they just, you know, couldn't couldn't effectively organize right around the issue of NATO and many other things that were happening in Europe. Right. And so the Cold War, as both an idea and as a set of practices, right, a way of understanding the world and specific initiatives, right, it presented a real challenge to Protestant globalism. Right. The way I think eventually liberal Protestants created an alternative to the Cold War framework um, was not by responding to events in Europe, but to really focus in on Asia. Right. Uh, the discussions about events in Asia were different than events and discussions about Europe because liberal Protestants were much more cognizant right, about the history of colonialism and Western racism in East Asia. Uh, and for this reason, right, they were more sympathetic to revolutionary movements in this region uh, because they were remedying uh, injustices caused by the West, right? So they might not have much sympathy for, you know, Romanian communism or Hungarian communism, but they did view more sympathetically, right, Mao's takeover of China. Um, and they started making early calls for the recognition of, right, you know, what they called Red China um, by the United States. And they called for the admission of China into the United Nations, right, partly under the theory that, inclusion of a country in the international community would kind of have a reformatory effect, right? And so they put a pause on this during the Korean War and, you know, the heyday of McCarthyism. But by 1953, they were calling again for a recognition uh, in full force, right? And so, you know, the way this happens in the specific debates, it's long, tedious, and complicated, but undergirding all these changes, right, uh, is um, what I call a theology of revolution, uh, which right, began kind of critiquing earlier Protestant globalist ideas, right? Um, the theology of revolution was more critical of U.S. power. It relocated the locus of humanity away from the United Nations and towards revolutionary movements, and it presented revolutions as part of God's judgment on humanity, right? That you know, if there's a revolution happening, there must be some kind of, you know, um, injustice happening that God wants you to address. And okay, you know, he doesn't want you to be a Marxist, but he does want you to, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, find some solution to the problem, right? And to engage it constructively, right? And so by the mid to late 1950s, liberal Protestants uh, slowly began moving away from Protestant globalism and their focus on the United Nations. They started um, de-emphasizing uh, universalism and became much more sympathetic to uh, anti-colonial movements, um, uh, you know, happening throughout the global South, right? So really at the height of the Cold War in the 1950s, we could see kind of ideological and theological shifts that really presaged um, the developments of the 1960s. And that leads us neatly, I think, into your epilogue where you, you know, discuss the legacies of this movement and what happened to it after the 1960s. So could you illuminate some of those uh, legacies for us? Yeah. So, you know, for all the turmoil of the 1960s, um, it was really a moment when I think liberal ecumenical Protestants were most effective politically, um, at least in terms of how they themselves conceived of political efficacy, right? So a number of important uh, political debates that were happening in the 60s, they felt like they were playing what they would call, you know, a prophetic role, right? Advocating publicly for stances that were deeply unpopular with the US public and trying to convince the American people, right? To go along with them on some of these ideas, you know, um, the civil rights movement, uh, the Vietnam War, um, you know, later uh, questions about, you know, gender and abortion and other things, um, right? And so they started conceiving of themselves as playing this role of doing things publicly and forcefully that were deeply unpopular, right? And at the same time in the 60s, they were quite critical of people like Billy Graham, who 
they argued um, was just telling Americans what they wanted to hear, right? That Billy Graham was just reassuring Americans um, uh, that the ideas and values they grew up with, right, really were biblical and didn't have to change, right? Uh, this is what they argued, you know, uh, Billy Graham benefited from and how he and his evangelical movement um, rose to power. So what you what you see by the 1970s is the fallout, right, of the kinds of divisions um, created earlier in the mid 20th century. You start seeing financial crises because, you know, uh, conservative churchgoers start withholding funds from organizations like the National Council of Churches. Um, in the 1970s, young people start leaving the churches and, you know, congregations uh, across the country of these so-called mainline, you know, denominations, mainline churches start aging, right, getting older and start shrinking, uh, getting smaller. And so, you know, in some sense, this is kind of a familiar story of um, decline, right, of the mainline. You know, the term mainline is oftentimes uh, synonymous with the idea of decline. Uh, but I think, you know, this is the wrong way of looking at it uh, for a few different reasons. Um, you know, one is that today millions of liberal ecumenical Protestants continue to go to church. They continue to build communities. You know, they remain very politically active. Um, they get less attention than evangelicals, but they continue to do important work in the United States um, in the present day. This is also the tradition and community that fostered and, you know, uh, and influenced folks like, you know, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, right, who were shaped by this liberal Protestant tradition. So that's, you know, one, one way in which I think the decline narrative kind of needs to be amended a little bit. But the second and more important way is that, you know, we see the influence of liberal Protestantism well beyond its community. Uh, so, you know, for example, you know, many of the religiously unaffiliated uh, people in the United States, the so-called nuns, right, none of the above, uh, when asked, what is your religion? Um, uh, you know, these are the people who now constitute the largest religious group in the United States, right? Many of these people, you know, share the cultural and moral values promoted by liberal Protestants earlier in the 20th century. Um, and, you know, many of these nuns, right, came out of these liberal Protestant traditions, right? People like, you know, Matt Hedstrom and others have uh, pointed this out, right? And so it's not just, you know, the nuns, it's not just these specific people in a variety of ways, right? Many of the values, the laws, the institutions, you know, including the, the movement for human rights um, that shape our world today were at least partly fostered um, by liberal Protestants, Right. And so if we use the cultural and political impact of this community as the measure of its influence, right, instead of taking a headcount to see how many members they still have, right, I think we can more or less dispense with this decline narrative um, altogether. So that's kind of one of the things I was thinking about um, when I was thinking about, you know, how to conclude this book. You know, the other thing I was thinking about uh, is, you know, political polarization and the rise of the religious right, you know, and this is right. I was writing this book in the wake of Trump. Um, and so I think, you know, the battles I chronicle in this book um, act as a kind of acted as a kind of bridge for many ecumenical Protestants to recognizably liberal and conservative camps. Right. And the turmoil of liberal Protestantism, you know, that they faced, you know, in the mid century and as well as the 1970s and thereafter, um, created a kind of opening um, for the rise of the religious right. right. Evangelicals in particular were able to raise their cultural and political influence, their social status, partly by opposing their religious rivals. Right. I think more important than the demographic and financial problems that liberal Protestants um, have faced is their loss of the cultural capital of Christianity um, to the religious right. And so ultimately, I hope my book is both, you know, a re-examination of a period before the religious right, you know, when religious liberalism, political liberalism went uh, hand in hand, as well as, you know, uh, a, a book that offers an explanation of, you know, in some modest way, um, how we got to where we are today. Now, there's one final question I, I always like to ask people in this program. And, you know, now that you have the, the triumph of having this book under your belt and out, what are you thinking of working on next? 
yeah, thanks for calling it a triumph. Um, uh, I'm working currently uh, on a new project that, you know, uh, uh, is, um, I guess, related to what we've been discussing so far. I'm, I'm writing what I conceive of as a global history of the U.S. culture wars. Um, it came out less of, you know, my my work on this particular community and more on my reading and, you know, teaching about the U.S. culture wars. And what I found is that, you know, almost exclusively the way historians think and define uh, the culture wars is some variation of how Pat Buchanan defined it um, at the 1992 Republican National Convention, um, which is, you know, something like a war for the soul of America. Right. And so I'm thinking through now, you know, uh, and I guess challenging in some ways the implicit um, methodological nationalism uh, embedded in the, you know, way we tell the history of the uh, culture wars and trying to think more broadly about the international dimensions that have shaped, you know, American divisions uh, from the 1970s uh, to the present day. And so, you know, what that will look like, you know, I'm not yet sure, you know, I have kind of a few uh, chapters in the works right now, but, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to exploring, um, yeah, the ways in which, you know, um, culture warriors in the United States uh, went overseas, as well as how developments, you know, the broader world uh, shaped these, you know, American debates about, you know, race and gender, um, church state relations and other hot button issues that I think we're still uh, trying to uh, work through today in, in our politics. Phenomenal. Look forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Zeb. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.